Hi, this is Bill Nevsky. You are listening to Good Heavens. David Hume, the early mid-18th century skeptic of all things miraculous, claimed in his posthumously published work, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, that our own experience of observing things created by man is insufficient grounds for thinking that the universe was therefore created by God. Hume, through the character of Philo, claims, quote, when two species of objects have always been observed to be conjoined together, I can infer by custom the existence of one whenever I see the existence of the other. And this I call an argument from experience. But how this argument can have place where the objects, as in the present case, are single, individual, without parallel or specific resemblance, may be difficult to explain. And will any man tell me with a serious countenance that an orderly universe must arise from some thought and art like the human, because we have experience of it? To ascertain this reasoning, it were requisite that we had experience of the origin of worlds, and it is not sufficient, surely, that we have seen ships and cities arise from human arts and contrivance." End quote. Hume, through Philo, says that in order to claim God created the universe, we would need to have witnessed in some capacity the origin of other worlds. Since no human being has ever observed the origin of this universe or of other worlds, we ought not to infer that God created the universe. But must we have first-hand experience of something to be able to recognize intelligent agency and design? This is an impossible epistemic burden for it would require us to experience firsthand everything we claim to be true. And it cannot possibly be the case that the truth of an event or a claim rests upon whether Hume or anyone else has actually observed it. It would make most every attempt at understanding the past impossible. Science itself would be impossible. In the early 20th century, astronomers, for example, were taken aback by the notion that their data seemed to be suggesting the universe had an actual beginning. Time, space, matter, and energy, everything, seemed to have come into being ex nihilo, from a point of origin. Of course, no scientist had the ability to actually see the beginning of the universe, yet they could make solid logical inferences from what they could see. The idea of a finite universe was quite disturbing for many scientists of the time. Sir Arthur Eddington, for example, who did pioneering work in the physics of stars, hated the idea of the universe having a beginning. He lamented, quote, Philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. I simply do not believe the present order of things started off with a bang. The expanding universe is preposterous. It leaves me cold." End quote. As Discovery Institute Director of Science and Culture Dr. Stephen C. Meyer notes in his 2021 book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, a finite universe, quote, would force scientists to confront the uncomfortable questions about the ultimate beginning of the material universe itself. 
It also raised the possibility that the universe had begun in something like a creation event, produced by a cause that existed independently of matter, space, time, and energy. End quote. A creation event. What could have possibly brought our universe into existence? What finally is responsible for the arrangement of the sun, moon, and stars? Why is Earth habitable? From where did biological life originate? For us as Christians, the answer, of course, is God. But no one has seen God at any time, the Apostle John writes in the first chapter of his Gospel account. Yet we can understand God both through what he has revealed to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through what he has revealed in the Bible, and through what creation reveals. The Apostle Paul declares, for example, in the opening chapter of Romans, that we can infer God's existence through the physical cosmos and everything it contains. Quote, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. End quote. Since the early 1990s, the idea of intelligent design has come to the forefront of the dialogue between Christianity and science. Though many within the intelligent design community are not specifically religious, there is a growing body of intellectuals who find ID as having tremendous explanatory scope and power in relation to the findings of modern cosmology and biology. Design in nature seems to them to be far more than coincidental or illusory. Design in nature is indeed making a comeback. Arguably, the cultural decline of intelligent design in nature can be largely attributed to Charles Darwin's 1859 publication, Origin of Species. Darwin provided a theoretical alternative to design which became a foundational paradigm for, as neurosurgeon Michael Egnor puts it, quote, the accompanying tsunami of atheist ideology, end quote. Egner observed that since Darwin, quote, a new age of atheistic faith inundated the scientific world. It seemed that biological design could be explained away by invoking Darwinian random heritable variation and natural selection, end quote. Egner's observations can be found in the foreword of the recently updated and revised second edition of one of the landmark texts of the intelligent design movement. William Dembski and co-author Winston Ewart's The Design Inference, Eliminating Chance Through Small Probabilities. The Design Inference is daunting, thorough, and comprehensive in what it argues. Their book is not merely arguing on the basis of improbability alone, as many critics have accused them, but improbability and specification. Dembski is both a mathematician and philosopher. He currently serves as a founding and senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is also a distinguished fellow with the Institute's Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. You can find out more about Bill's work on his personal website at BillDemski.com, that's Dembski, D-E-M-B-S-K-I.com, and at Discovery.org. Consider dumping a jar of 10,000 pennies on the floor. 
There are a virtual innumerable multitude of possible arrangements they could take on the floor, all of them equally improbable. But what if one of those arrangements happened to spell out $100? This arrangement is just as improbable as any other possible arrangement, but the specification of the pennies spelling out $100 is a signifier that some kind of design is surely to be involved. As Dembski notes, the design inference isn't just a formal mathematical argument, but is something we use in everyday life. These sorts of arguments, uh, they have uh, a lot of force. One of the examples I consider in the second edition of the design inference is the Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff scandal. Uh, there was a there's a quant named uh, Harry Markopoulos who just skewered the SEC because, I mean, he saw years before that this had to be a Ponzi scheme. And he was he was constantly contacting them. But the interesting thing is he saw, when he was looked at the data, within four minutes, he saw that it was a Ponzi scheme. It was a very simple design inference that, that he drew. Dembski believes the design inference, though it does not mention specifically who or what the designer might be, nevertheless helps clear away many intellectual barriers that non-Christians might have toward belief in God. I don't see that there's a direct path in the sense that Jesus is the designer, you know, or anything like that. But I, what I, where I see intelligent design's role in apologetics, and this is what apologetics profile, the program, is that it clears away so much of the rubbish in our culture, in the, our educational system that tries to make it implausible to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe that the Bible is an accurate accounting of what God has done in salvation history. So, you know, there's traditionally two books, you know, of revelation. There's the book of nature, the book of scripture. And I think what intelligent design does is it gets right the book of nature. And if we get the book of nature wrong, it's going to have we're going to have problems understanding the book of scripture. So that's that's where I see its role. As we begin our conversation, Dembski shared with me how the first 1998 publication of the design inference came about. Here is Bill Dembski. If you're a materialist or, you know, atheist, then Design is something that comes at the end of an evolutionary process. It can be a cosmological evolution. It can be a biological evolution. But intelligence is something that's an afterthought of natural history, as it were. It's not built in. So you've got this uh, mindless material universe that's unfolding. And then through a process of natural selection or whatever, uh, you have these intelligent agents that come on the scene. And so chance, in some sense, then is fundamental. Now, when you try to understand chance, though, probabilistically, you find that just about anything that happens is highly improbable. And things that would call forth design for you uh, are just as improbable as things that call forth chance. So if I throw a bunch, a thousand marbles on the floor, precise configuration of those marbles is going to be highly improbable. But then what happens if those marbles spell out, welcome to apologetics profile? <laughs> now you got to say there's something else going on there. Right. 
the thing is, I approached, and so I was at a conference on randomness. The paper you described was uh, Randomness by Design, published it in 1991 with the philosophical journal Noose, but came out of the conference at Ohio State University in 1998. It was organized by Percy Diaconis at Stanford and Harvey Friedman at uh, uh, at Ohio State. Uh, and the the upshot of that conference, I mean, the, the it was focused on randomness. It was titled randomness, but the upshot of the conference when everything was concluded was we know what randomness isn't. We don't know what it is. Okay. Hmm. And the fundamental intuition with randomness is that something is random as long as you don't see a pattern in it. But then once you do see a pattern in it, you won't unsee it. And it's got to be the right sort of pattern. So for instance, if you look at something like a Rorschach, test. It looks like a random ink pot, but then suddenly you see, oh, that's a skull or that's a woman uh, combing her hair in the mirror. Then you say, wait a second, that wasn't the result of chance. Okay. And so randomness on this traditional view was then this this thing that we didn't understand, but then we understood non-randomness. Well, if we understand non-randomness, shouldn't that be the fundamental thing? Mm. And then isn't randomness really... So if design, non-randomness is the fundamental thing, then randomness is, as it were, a byproduct of design. So it flips the problem on its head. And it's basically saying things are non-random provisionally as long as we don't see a salient pattern in them. Once we see the pattern, then it's non-random. Gotcha. It's design. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's that's flipping the problem. And so it makes randomness really parasitic on design. You know, you can, in a sense, make sense out of randomness apart from design. Right. Okay. So that that's that was the point of that article, and it uh, it was well received. I mean, as a consequence of that article, I was invited. There was a big eight volume uh, encyclopedia of philosophy that Rutledge did in. 1998, and so I was asked to do the randomness article on that. So this this was well-received work. Uh, it uh, ended up in the consequences or implications I took from it uh, were unsettling, let's just say, for some people. And that's where I got into trouble, yes. and that's why. I'm I'm not on faculty at some prestigious university at this point. Understood, understood. So it, it seemed that uh, from what I was reading of the history of the first edition of the design inference in came out in 1998. It's been 25 years. Congratulations right. on uh, Thank you. redoing it and giving out giving it a facelift. I didn't read the first edition. I've gotten probably three quarters of the way through the second edition in preparation for our interview. But uh, yeah. the book itself in 1998 was published on Cambridge University Press, as I understand it. And by itself, it was not, it was not itself the thing that stirred the enormity of the controversy which followed, Bill. It seemed to be that when you applied the design inference to biology is when you got in trouble. Is that accurate? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, and I, I don't know if I want to say I was being cagey, but I, I think I, I, I had already had some experience with biology and the sort of controversy that these ideas might be creating. So in the first edition of the design inference, I simply applied it to a lot of human contexts of so mm. data falsification, cryptography, 
uh, plagiarism, uh, SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So there were lots of examples where I could just run this uh, design inferential engine and say, okay, this is where design is relevant. This is how you infer it in these situations. I did consider uh, origin of life in the design inference first edition, but I simply was looking at um, how this sort of inference might apply uh, when creationists versus atheists look at it. But I, I was, you know, I didn't lay my cards on the table. I didn't say, okay, and this is where I stand mm-hmm. on this. So I just showed how the method applies. You know, this is the thing. It's it's a method, uh, and but then the natural thing is, you know, methods don't really care where you focus them. So what happens when you do focus it on biological systems? What happens when you actually try to come to terms, is there real design in biology at the origin of life, in the subsequent history of life? And that's where, uh, you know, uh, that's where I ran into a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, after, I think it was in 99, um, about a year after the book came out, um, you're yeah. offered a professorship at Baylor here in Texas. Uh, is that correct? You started in 99? Right. Was that when it was begun yeah it was uh so the the book came out fall of 98 and um i'd known robert sloan who's president of baylor he had made it clear he wanted to get me on faculty this was back even in 1996 but he was looking for some opportunity to do it at the time baylor was not a research university so i wasn't interested in teaching a lot of courses there i wanted to get on with the research and so after that book came out, um, he had some of his people contact me and said, you know, how can we get you on faculty? And at that point, I was still a golden boy. You know, it was like, what can we do? You know, and I uh, Templeton Foundation was still uh, very po- or not. Oh, I shouldn't say very positive, but open to intelligent design. I got a hundred thousand dollar Templeton grant at the end of that year. So wow. everything, all the all the stars, it seemed were aligned, and <laughs> so they made me an offer. I was uh, given a nice title of associate research professor in the conceptual foundations of science. I did not have a departmental affiliation. I was hired to do a center. Um, uh, it was called the Michael Polanyi Center, and it would, was be focused on complexity information and design. And so that's uh, what I did. I had a co-director, Bruce Gordon, and um, we were doing our research. Uh, we were doing some faculty seminars, and then also we arranged a really big conference called the Nature of Nature uh, and uh, we had two Nobel laureates there, Christian de Duve and Steven Weinberg from down in Austin. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was uh, represented with uh, different perspectives. You had the more straight up intelligent design perspective, uh, the, the more theistic evolutionary perspective, Howard Van Til, Nancy Murphy, and then uh, the straight up uh naturalistic, materialistic perspective was there. Uh, it was a terrific conference, and uh, we had finally ended up, years later, getting uh, a quasi-conference proceedings called The Nature of Nature. But uh, within three days of that conference, the faculty senate voted, I think it was 27 to 2, to shut my center down. You know, wow. Was, uh, too much too much success. Uh, you know, it was, they, <laughs> they did not want... Um, 
you know, I think that I was unaware or didn't fully appreciate the sort of the history at Baylor with the moderate versus conservative Baptist conflict. And this was just a bridge too far for a number of them. They saw this as bringing us back to, you know, they equated intelligent design with creationism, with fundamentalism. You know, they're different, but they made that identification. And uh, that was... Uh, uh, at that point, I quickly became persona non grata. Mm. Uh, administration was looking for ways to get me out of my contract. I had to hire a lawyer to, uh, you know, stand up for my academic freedoms. I was supposed to be at a congressional briefing in May of 20 of 2000, not a hearing, a briefing. So it was just to let members of Congress know about some of these ideas about intelligent design and why it was legit. And uh, the the uh, administration stopped me from going. They basically said, "If you go, we will remove you from uh, your position." Wow! So wow! So so yeah. So it's uh, and then I ended up staying on at Baylor, essentially as a contract um, employee. I had five years on a contract. They paid me. I never taught, you know, it's funny, funny because I was on faculty and people say, well, what did you teach? And I never taught anything at Baylor because I was not permitted to teach there because any department that would have had me teach would have gotten into trouble with other people who didn't want me to have any role at the, at the university. I had two books uh, with um, uh, InterVarsity that came out, Intelligent Design, The Bridge Between Science and Theology, and, and then the design revolution, both of those got the first prize from uh, Christianity Today for, I think, the, the best book in science and culture or, or society and culture or something like that. I don't recall the exact. And uh, never in my time at Baylor would any of these achievements touted in the in their press. It would, it would, if you were just looking at what was in the Baylor PR materials, you would not know that I was on faculty there. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to belabor this, you know, but it's it's just, uh, you know, in terms of cancel culture and all of that, I, I learned of it back in 2000. So when I saw it emerge the last few years, you know, it's like, there okay, it is again. Been there, done, been there, done yeah. that. Well, and it, it's important, I think, to understand the, the nature of this uh, conflict with uh, intelligent design and how it's, it's grown in the last uh, uh, several decades. Um, it's interesting too, Bill, because I'm somewhat of a fan of Michael Polanyi's work. He's helped me intellectually and epistemologically um, understand, yeah. uh, having a way to understand the, the bridge, if you will, between uh, Christianity, faith, and science. And uh, Polanyi was a, a chemist, I believe, who sort of transitioned into yeah. philosophy and has this whole body of knowledge that he, he calls tacit or personal knowledge. And if I'm reading Polanyi correctly, the thing that impressed me most about his his foresight in thinking about these things was that in science or anything that we do, um, there's this thing, to, to be colloquial, I'm not quoting him directly, that called the aha moment that sort of advances scientific paradigms where a scientist has mm -hmm. a brilliant flash of insight. But that his whole argument is that, that, that scientists don't leave their personality, their personal knowledge, their experiential knowledge at the lab door. They indeed bring this all into how they do science. And you talk a little bit about, uh, in the design inference, you talk about how the the knowledge that we have, the, the, the argument that you build 
is uh, built upon what we would tacitly call common sense anyway. That the design inference is not just a specific scientific insight, but as you say in the book, it's something that we all do every day. Yeah. You're just trying to put some mathematical skin on this. But I wanted to read a quote from Polanyi and have you comment on this nature of knowledge and science and and talk about the the common sense or more common everyday aspect. Uh, of the design inference that we all do. But Polanyi says this in this uh, his book on personal knowledge. He says that uh, every kind of human knowing, ranging from perception to scientific observation, includes an appreciation of both order contrasted to randomness and of the degree of this order. We have seen that information theory, which you talk about, ascribes, in fact, a numerical value to the degree of order present in an ordered system forming a message. Such dynamic interaction between order and randomness is a necessary and sufficient condition for the applicability and of probability statements to mechanical systems. And so Polanyi is echoing what you're saying, in a sense, that, that we have this everyday common knowledge that we apply and that probability and randomness works only in a universe where we first have paradigmatically the ability to recognize design in everything we do. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, no accident that uh, I called the center in honor of Polanyi, and I just pulled out the first edition of the Design Inference. And let me just read the, this is the very opening, the preface. Highly, highly improbable events don't happen by chance. Just about everything that happens is highly improbable. Both claims are correct as far as they go. The aim of this monograph is to show just how far they go. In personal knowledge, Michael Polanyi, so it's about sentence number four in the book, uh, he considers stones placed in the garden. In one instance, the stones spell Welcome to Wales by British Railways. In the other, they appear randomly strewn. In both instances, the precise arrangements of stones is vastly improbable, okay, and, and so on. You know, so that's, I mean, he's he's working that same intuition. I mean, there's uh, the same thing, uh, you know, uh, in chemical engineering news, he was looking at the information in DNA and that the DNA itself, it allows for complete random rearrangements. So how is it that some of those arrangements are salient, can code for proteins, can do biologically useful stuff? And it's, and it's very rare, those arrangements that can do something biologically useful. Uh, so the, these these design inferences are implicit right there in his observations. Uh, I, I would add that the a, the, the hardcore artist is going to say, well, uh, yes, they may be very rare, but the thing is, they evolve from other proteins or DNA sequences, and so you it's not as though you're just getting them from scratch. There's there's an evolutionary path. So they there's there's an argument that they would make, and I would say. There's a problem with this sort of evolvability story because it's got to start somewhere. Uh, and it's, and when, when you look at the actual probabilities, even factoring in, uh, the Darwinian mechanism, uh, you don't really help yourself. So I'm, I'm this is just by the way, you know, but I, I just want to well, let, let, uh, the, uh, let the people who are listening in on this, that this is not just a, um, you know, I'm not just, not just making a naive argument that, oh, it's, there are just all these possibilities and look at how improbable this is. It's not just sheer improbability. We have to look at the actual stochastic processes that are involved, uh, 
for the evolvability, and then you also have to look at the, the the salient patterns or the specifications, as I call them, because you need a pattern uh, there. Just highly improbable things, if there's not a suitable pattern, uh, you don't need to invoke design. Chances just... Right, right. That's the argument that I, that's commonly evoked. Um, but I want to ask you this before we get too much further with this, just for some clarification, because as I'm reading the literature and the background and reading your book... Um, that it, it struck me that the chance and luck, if you will, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins uses uh, luck and improbability. We're talking about these these entities, if you will, for lack of a better word, these concepts of chance and and luck, if you will. Um, Dawkins has that book, Mount Improbable. But what it seems to me, Bill, is that they're using this language of chance and luck as though chance and luck were had causal powers in a sense, that, that we say chance, we say luck, or the opposition to, to, to design inference says chance or luck, but but it's not, it's, it's, it's almost like it's described as a fifth fundamental force of some kind, that the chance itself had causal properties or causal powers. Um, but to be fair to them, do, would you say that, that this idea of chance and luck, that they would come back with, well, it's the laws of physics, it's the laws of nature, it's the laws of biology that give us these things. How how does the erudite and more sensible Darwinian or naturalist um, further explain how chance and luck, what what they are, and how they're how they're powered if they themselves are not causal? Um, yeah, I mean the the ontology of chance, if you will. I mean it's something I I deal with the metaphysics of chance in the inference. Uh, and again, there it's it's uh, turning the problem on its head, seeing chance as a as a byproduct or epiphenomenon of design, and I, uh, I I'm, I'm persuaded of that view. But you know, I, I think yes, uh, you know, you can do an ontology of chance. I mean, there are people who've done that. I think Karl Popper had a propensity view of of chance, uh, where it's just a propensity of things to. Uh, to have a certain probabilistic character. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I'm not sure I need to ascribe to Dawkins a view of a, of chance as a causal power. I think it's enough just to take a pragmatic descriptive view of it. And then, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, there, you know, I flip a coin a hundred times. I look at it, look at it and I don't see any pattern in there. I ascribe it to chance. Okay. Uh, that seems reasonable to me. Uh, but if I flip that coin, treat heads as one, zero, uh, tail as zeros, and then in uh, some Unicode, it spells out the first uh, words of uh, Hamlet's soliloquy, you know, then I'd say, wait a second, there's something funny going on here. And so then I, at that point, I'm going to say, okay, there's a designing agent, there's a an intelligent cause that's behind this. But just what's fundamentally behind, you know, if I just flip a coin and I don't see anything there, uh, is it some sort of irreducible chance? Uh, is, uh, you know, is at some level quantum indeterminacy, is that producing it? And, uh, uh, you know, is there, are there some hidden variables that I was Einstein, right? That really everything is deterministic. And we just, you know, and so in a sense, chance is just an ignorance of uh, physical laws. You know, that may be, you know, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's relevant to my argument. You know, this is one of the things I do. I, I try to say, you know, whatever your views are on chance, you know, 
there are certain types of conclusions you're going to be drawing from certain situations. And, you know, and so I just want to uh, really allow as wide a conception of chance, but then I also want to narrow things down and say, no, but if you're dealing with, as with the design inference, these specification, small probability arguments, then you have an explanatory burden. I mean, there's, there's something you need to do and uh, you need to, you know, design uh, comes to the fore. So that's, that's what I would Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, I don't know if you know the movie, this is a colloquial example. Um, the the 1959 movie Rio Bravo with John uh-huh. Wayne, uh, his character was he was a sheriff, John T. Chance. Okay. And uh, there's a scene in the movie, and this just came to mind as I was reading uh, the last couple of days. There's a scene in the movie where he he they're playing cards, okay. right? And uh, um, and uh, he, Wayne's character Chance discovers that the, the, his opponents are winning with with a frequency that just shouldn't yeah. be. And he suspects that there's cheating going on and comes to discover that the deck of cards that were being used at the table were missing three aces. And that was in the pocket of the guy in the checkered vest. And he was using these these aces to to his own uh, to his own for his own interest, of course. But uh, I say all that to say that 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 reminded me of of what you're saying, in a sense, that that Wayne's character chance can only recognize cheating because there's at base the schematic of the 52 deck 52 card deck that he knows how that's supposed to be arranged he knows the rules of how the game should be played and he knows the statistical anomalies of winning a hand several times in a row and and this seems to be what you're saying in a sense that we can recognize and you apply this to in practical applications and you do mention cards a couple of times where where cheating is a design inference. It's not a scientifically, you know, um, astute thing. It's something that we do all the time that Wayne's character recognizes cheating because there's design that enables him to recognize cheating. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it is, but I, you know, let me nuance it a, a little bit. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you've got a smoking gun. So I, I, I think I saw Rio Bravo maybe 40 years ago or more, you know? <laughs> but uh, it's one thing yeah. if you find those three cards in the guy with the checkered vests pocket, you know, uh, there you've got a smoking gun, you know, and I think in a lot of design, you don't have to draw a design inference, you know, you just see, you know, you see the person pull the trigger, you know, but uh, the, the design inference becomes necessary and interesting when you have an effect and then you have to try to read back to what's, what the cause was and whether it was intelligence. And so we, we have these sorts of situations all the time. You know, is that you look at a mound, is that a burial mound? Is that just a naturally formed mound? That rock, you know, is that an arrowhead? Is it just a random chunk of rock? I mean, you're just confronted with the rock. You don't see the causal story of how it got there. And so that, that's then the challenge. It's to say when we don't have the smoking gun, when we don't have a video camera that tells us how it came about, are there features of an event, object, or structure that would tell us that it is a consequence of intelligent agency. And that's where this design inference comes in. And, you know, we we use it in all sorts of cases. I mean, a very interesting case. I mean, we've got actually two university presidents who've recently had to resign. 
uh, one for data falsification, the other for plagiarism. More recent case, plagiarism was Claudine Gay at Harvard. Uh, the other case was Mark Tessier-Levine at Stanford, who had been uh, fraudulently uh, using and reusing data in his uh, research articles. And when that was his own, his own data, right? As I understand it, was it, it was, he was copying from yeah. himself. I mean, that's, that's, you know, yeah. but I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're copying text that you've written, you know, one place elsewhere. But the thing is, these were supposed to be separate experiments establishing separate, you know, separate results. And so basically he's taking, and you, you're seeing the same sorts of error distributions and whatnot, uh, you know, and that's, uh, you know, and I think he has tried to do a little two-step around this by saying that uh, he did not actually, you know, there's no video of him actually manipulating that data. So I think, you know, there are the multiple authors, and so he can try to wash his hands of it. But the fact is he had to resign from Stanford uh, this last summer, you know. And it was, uh, it was actually an undergrad, uh, not just undergrad, a freshman who uh, who outed him, you know, it was, uh, so, uh, so you know, so these these are, if you will, not just academic matters, although they they impinge on the academy. You know, I mean, these these sorts of arguments uh, they have uh, a lot of force. One of the examples I consider in the second edition of the Design Inference is the Bernie Madoff Bernie Madoff scandal. Uh, there was a there's a quant named uh, Harry Markopoulos who just skewered. The SEC, because I mean, he saw years before that this had to be a Ponzi scheme, and he was he was constantly contacting. Them. But the interesting thing is, he saw when he was looked at the data within four minutes, he saw that it was a Ponzi scheme. It was a very simple design inference that that he drew. Uh, he just looked at you know, the 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 thing with Bernie Madoff was not so much that he had the best return that they were so distant. Uh, you know, you should you you know if you even at its best, you know, you might have two months uh, of good returns for one month of bad. So two steps forward, one step back. For him, there were, it was always, it was virtually always one step, you know, it was always a step forward. I think out of 85 or 90 uh, months, I think he only had three months of uh, 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 losses, whereas I think the standard and uh, S and P, I think were 23 months. So it was, uh, uh, so in, you know, so then basically he just did a little binomial calculation and, you know, he was looking at an improbability of one in 40 billion. And I think that's, I'm just, you know, in the book, I rationally reconstruct how did he see it so quickly? And yet, you know, the design inference implicated made off, I would say decisively. And yet, People would not take him to account because his reputation on Wall Street was so great. He was head of uh, the NASDAQ for a while. The SEC was actually looking to him for advice. You know? So it's like, but, uh, but it was, uh, so the design inference actually ended up being a corrective to the sort of bias and uh, people just believing in somebody's reputation without having a really good basis for it. So... Uh, yeah, so I'm, I think there's there's a lot to be said for the design inference as a way of keeping us honest.
are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. This is Good Heavens, a podcast that takes a deeper look into things about heaven and earth that Horatio never dreamt of.